Hey church, it's good to be with you this morning and open God's word together. Our scripture reading for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and we're going to be reading and looking at verses 1 through 7. So hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Author and speaker Glenn Scrivener poses a scenario that goes something like this. Imagine that one day you, along with a group of others, find yourselves waking up in a room, a large room with no doors and windows. And then imagine that no one in the group has any memory of ever being outside that room. How long do you think it would be before you began to consider what's outside the room? Is there even an outside of the room? If so, what's it like? How do I get there? And among the various members of the group, different theories begin to arise about the nature of the outside and how to get there. Some people think it's one way, some people think it's another way, and then there's others who think there is no outside at all. Now the question I want to pose for us this morning is, what if, this, what if life in this world is like that room? Now this thought experiment in some ways describes how we might think about heaven. Is there anything beyond this material world? If so, how do we get there? Is it real? And if so, what difference does that make? Now, certainly there are no shortage of theories about heaven and what heaven is like. Some people might think it's, it's an eternal vacation or, you know, we're going to be living up in the clouds, maybe grow some wings, wear a cool halo, uh, we'll, maybe we'll play harps, or we'll, it'll just be a time to, to practice your favorite hobbies or or in eternal church service or choir practice. Or maybe it's nothing. Now, whatever your view, whatever one's view of heaven is, even if you don't believe in heaven at all, that is going to have significant implications on how we respond in this world, especially to trouble. Some will despair in the face of trouble that everything is meaningless. Other people will simply say, we just need to make the most of this present situation because it's all we've got. But still others will be comforted by the idea that there is more ahead. And the trouble that they face on this, on this earth will not get the last word. Now, <clears throat> what if someone who was trustworthy in every way came from outside the room and entered in to where you were and told everything that there is to know about the outside of the room, everything that we need to know, would that change things for you? 
If someone like that came from heaven, do you think that would comfort you at all? Well, as we've already said, today is the first week of a new series we are starting for Advent called, What Are We Waiting For? And the Advent season is where we look back and remember how Jesus came in his first coming and all that he did in his, in his life and his ministry. But Advent is also a season where we look ahead and where we look forward to when Jesus is going to return again. And until then, we wait and we look forward for that day. And in this series, we will be focusing on what we commonly refer to as heaven. Now, like I said, there are many different views of what heaven uh, may mean. But just so it's clear, what I mean when I say heaven is the space where Jesus fully reigns together with his people. And in this first week, we will see that the promise of heaven is a comfort on earth. So if you haven't already, I invite, you, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. John 14, the book of John is the fourth book of the New Testament. And John 14 is part of what scholars refer to as the upper room discourse. And this is when Jesus is giving his final teachings to the disciples before, um, before his death while they are gathered upstairs. And in this, in this uh, section is when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It's when he observed the Lord's Supper and the, the Passover with them. And when Jesus explained to his disciples that, the, that he and his death is the fulfillment of Israel's Passover feast. And so in John 14, Jesus knows that his death is near and he knows that troubling times are ahead. And so he seeks to strengthen and comfort his disciples. And these words to his disciples in John 14 can be a comfort for us too. Because the promise of heaven is a comfort on earth. And in this text, we see three ways that the promise of heaven comforts us now. And the first is that we can endure any trouble. We can endure any trouble. Jesus knows that what's about to happen and the events around his death will be very traumatic for his disciples. In chapter 13, verse 21, he says, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Think about this from the disciples' perspective. Their teacher and dear friend for the last three years, one of them is going to betray him? And then after this, Jesus tells them, Yet a little while I am with you, where I, and where I am going, you cannot follow me. What does he mean? Why is he leaving them? Where is he going? Why can't they come with him? It's all very troubling for the disciples. And then, to make matters even worse, Jesus tells Peter that he will deny Jesus in his last hours. Can you imagine the sorrow that they must have felt? They could hardly bear the thought of being without him. Jesus will be taken from them, they will be scattered, and they will despair that they have lost their best friend forever. How will they go on? In the face of the traumatic events that are shortly to come, what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. How could he say that? What could they possibly do to prevent or to fix what's about to happen? 
Surely they wouldn't have any kind of resources or wealth or power that could remedy this situation. So how could they not be troubled? What could they turn to to get them through this? Jesus tells them to trust in God. And he, he also tells them in the same way that they are to trust in him. God and Jesus are one and the same. They are to trust or believe in Jesus just as they are to trust and believe in God himself. And Jesus tells them this because the trouble will not last. It's not going to be a goodbye forever. It's going to be a so long for now. He, he doesn't just tell them that he's leaving. He also tells them in verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Now this statement, I will come again, this is what Advent is about. Just as Israel longed, longed and waited for the Messiah's first coming, so we also long and wait for his second coming. Because things are not as they ought to be. And we face times of trouble. But we know that when Jesus comes again, he'll take all of his people to be with him and his Father. And they will be wonderfully reunited in heaven. And this is the hope longing, and comfort of Advent. Now, I'm sure that there's probably some of you who like long car trips, but I'm not one of those people. After so many hours, I think there's a limit to the number of hours of podcasts and audiobooks and music I can listen to and the number of phone calls I can make catching up with friends and family before I, my body just starts to ache, I feel sore, and I just, it it's, feels like I can feel my brain just turning to mush in the dullness of the car ride. But apart from the occasional pit stop, I keep going on the trip. In spite of the occasional discomfort, I can endure because I know that I have a destination waiting for me at the end. And the same is true for us. Because of the promise of heaven, we can endure any trouble. Now, like many of you, I've had my own share of trouble this year. Moving to a new state when you don't, where you don't know anyone and adjusting to a new place, is not, it's not always easy. And beginning a new job just as a pandemic is sweeping over the globe is, is not ideal. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and as I'm sure you can imagine, it, it's come with some difficulties. I've also faced some, some frustrations with with, uh, with my housing, as well as some health concerns that I've had. And then, um, and then this year, I also lost a grandparent who passed away. And then, and then just because it's 2020, this year decided to throw a, a, a car accident into the mix. Just have fun with that, Ben. So I, it's like, boy, what a, what a year filled with trouble that this has been. I wonder what's next. Now, I, I don't tell you these things to complain or to make you feel bad for me. There's been plenty of good things this year, too. But I, I, I tell you these things because I know from my own experience that we can turn and we can trust Jesus in our trouble. Jesus is a source of great confidence because he is the one who has overcome through his life, death, and resurrection on my behalf, on our behalf. And one day, we will share in his victory together with all of his people 
I know that whatever I face, God will be faithful to get me through, and I can endure any trouble because I know that the end is good. And probably for all of us here, trouble is something that unfortunately we've seen a lot of this year. And likely this has come from many different places and for different reasons. But probably we felt the trouble this year in especially personal or, or relational ways. Like the disciples were distressed at no longer being with Jesus, many of us have not been able to be with and gather with the people that we care about. Maybe it's due to some sort of family separation, the loss or the death of a loved one, a family illness, or any, any sort of disruption caused by COVID. These types of things have left many of us feeling isolated and troubled, separated from those we love. And in times like these, who do we trust in? Some trust in grocery stores and their stockpile of goods, or they turn to Netflix and their favorite TV shows. We, we might put our trust in the government or healthcare or the stock market or technology. And some, some turn to alcohol or any number of vices to help them cope and get through the trouble. But let's face it. Sometimes none of these things that we could turn to, wealth, power, anything else, can fix the trouble that we face. And so what do we do then? What do we do when we wonder how we will ever keep going? Jesus tells us, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be troubled. In those times when things seem overwhelming, we can choose to remind ourselves of Jesus' word and his promise to us. And we can trust in Jesus because Jesus has overcome and he will return one day to make all things right. The promise of heaven enables us to endure any trouble. But that's not all we've seen in this passage. The second way that the promise of heaven is a comfort on earth is that we can be welcomed home. Now, isn't it nice to be able to return home after a long, hard day? Just last week, Pastor Nathan preached about home, about how home is a place of healing, safety, and love. It's a place, home is a place where you should always be able to retreat to to find these things and be warmly received. Now look with me at what Jesus says in John 14, verses 2 2 through 4. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, when Jesus says there are many rooms in his Father's house, he's not making a point about um, how luxurious heaven will be or the kind of amenities we will find there. Instead, he is saying that there will be plenty of room for everyone who will come and join him and his Father in their home. You can be welcomed and you can be a member of the household Space or other resources will never be an issue. 
there is no occupancy limit in heaven. And there we will live with our Heavenly Father and His family. But why are we welcomed to our home in heaven? Well, it's because of what Jesus says in verse 2. I go and prepare a place for you. Now, at first read, this might sound like Jesus is leaving to go to a house, and then once he gets to the house, he's going to start building these other rooms. He's going to construct additions onto the house. After all, Jesus was a builder, right? But notice that Jesus says there, there are already many rooms in his father's house. So it's not that Jesus has been gone for the last 2,000 years on some massive heavenly construction site putting up drywall. He hasn't been doing that. Rather, it's the act of Jesus going that makes the place ready for the disciples. In the Gospel of John, it is Jesus lifted up on the cross and his departure to the Father through his death that prepares the place. That's what enables us to join him. That is what secures our welcome home to heaven. Think of it this way. About this time a year ago, I was getting ready to move here. And so, first I came for a visit to find an apartment that I would live in. And when I found one, I paid a deposit to reserve the place for me to move into. I didn't go to build a place. I went to secure one. And to make sure that when I did come here, I would be received and I would be welcomed into my new home. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying, kind of like what Jesus is saying here. We can be welcomed because Jesus has already gone ahead and made all of the reservations. He's made all of the arrangements through his life, death, and resurrection. And now heaven is waiting for our arrival. And we can be sure that since Jesus has already gone through this trouble, he will return for us and we will be welcomed home. Now, I want us to take a second to reflect upon this. The fact that Jesus has prepared a place for us in his Father's home. Does that type of warm, hospitable welcome characterize how we view God as someone who welcomes and loves to be hospitable and wants to welcome us? Do we think of him as this kind of a loving father, or do we think of him more often as a cold, disapproving judge. According to Jesus, God is a loving Father that desires us to come and be welcomed by Him. And I think, I think if we lived our lives in the light of this reality, I think that would really affect the way that we pray. I think we would turn to our Father as as someone who loves to hear from us, and we would love to go to him and talk with him. And I think that would really strengthen our prayer lives. But I also imagine that if we viewed heaven this way, we would probably hold a lot less tightly onto the things here. Not because it doesn't matter, but because we know that whatever happens here, nothing can touch our home in heaven which is completely secure for us. And that is our ultimate hope. Now, I want to be clear that we understand this. Jesus' disciples are welcomed because of the work that Jesus does to prepare it, not the work that we do. But don't you think that we often get this backwards? Don't you think, don't you think we often tend to think of God as a lot like Santa? 
Someone who's always watching, watching to see how you behave yourself, keeping track of all the bad things and the good things that you do, so that as long as you are a good little boy or girl, you'll end up on the nice list and win the prize of heaven. But according to the Bible, God is like Jesus, and he welcomes all who will come because of what Jesus has done. There's not a certain kind of quota that we have to fill of good things to be allowed in. St. Peter is not at the gates of heaven like some tough heavenly bouncer that you've got to convince to let him in or to be worthy enough to enter. It doesn't work like that because Jesus is the one it depends on. Now, so far we've seen that the promise of heaven is a comfort on earth because we can endure any trouble and because we can be welcomed home. And that leads us to the third way that the promise of heaven is a comfort on earth. And that is we can know the way. After explaining to his disciples that he is going back to his father's house, Jesus then tells them that they know the way to this place. But how, how do they get there? What is, what is the way? Well, that's exactly what the disciple Thomas wondered. In verse 5, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, Thomas, I think Thomas asks the obvious question, probably the question that all of the other disciples were wondering about and wanted to ask, but were too embarrassed. We don't know where your father's house is. How can we know the way? And some of you might be thinking, come on, Thomas, don't be difficult. Just pull out your Garmin or Google Maps, type in Father's house and, you know, go, just, and then just go. But as, as is typical in the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking in metaphors, and the disciples don't understand them yet. But Jesus replies to Thomas in verses 6 and 7, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is telling us that the way to heaven is not a path that we walk down, but a person. There's no instructions about the trail towards heaven that will end with now arriving in heaven, your destination will be on the right. Instead, Jesus is saying that the way is a person. Jesus has opened the way to heaven through himself. So the way to heaven is not by opening our own doors or about taking the path that Jesus took, but simply going to Jesus. So Jesus is not making a point about a way or truth or life as much as Jesus is making a point about himself. He is the way, and there is no other. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson eloquently puts it in the form of a sonnet, I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path, to blaze a trail, that you may simply follow in my tracks, pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, 
The sons of night, look on me and construe. My way is just the road for you to run. My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, and stark rejection draped in agony. My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other path is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. <clears throat> Church, this is an incredible message that we have been entrusted with. Making the way known to a lost world by making Jesus known to the world. And for a world that is not just in need of comfort but rescue, this is good news that we ought to tell. Now, this is, this is not a word that many of us are fond of saying, but this is what evangelism is about. And if you, if you want to learn more about evangelism and how to tell the world about the way that is Jesus, I invite you to register online and join us next week for our Evangelism Lunch and Learn. Jesus claims to be from the outside. He's taught us and shown us the way in himself. And he's backed up what he said through his resurrection and ascension. What a comfort Jesus is. The promise of heaven is a comfort on earth. We can endure any trouble. We can be welcomed home. And we can know the way. Everything has been prepared by what Jesus has done on behalf of sinners. There's plenty of room in his Father's house. We are invited to share in Jesus' joy with his Father. We can have his Father as our Father and share in their joy together with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the way. There is no way but him. To have Jesus is to have the Father, and to truly have the Father is to have Jesus. He offers you himself and his life. And this is precisely what the Lord's Supper is about. These elements, the bread and the cup, are a symbol of Jesus. They symbolize how Jesus went to be with the Father and to prepare a place for his people, and how Jesus alone is the way to this life where we can be welcomed home. So now the question for every one of us is, do you want Jesus? Life is filled with trouble, but the promise of heaven is extended by Jesus. To receive him is to receive this promise and this life. So if you take these elements, you profess that Jesus is your welcome home to the Father. You profess that Jesus is the way. And you profess that you receive Jesus as your way and as your life. If that doesn't describe you, then this is not for you, but instead I want to encourage you to consider Jesus and his claims. But if you do want Jesus, if you do want to receive Jesus, whether you've done this before or whether this will be your first time, then you are welcome to join and partake together with all of God's family. Heaven is opened because of the Jesus' life which was given and his blood which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So go ahead and peel back the first layer of your communion cup and take out the bread. <clears throat> 
And in Matthew, it's recorded that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, left to ourselves, we are lost and in need of comfort. Thank you for the good news about Jesus that you have shown us today, both in your word and in the Lord's Supper. We bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.